welcome aboard the battleship pretension i am tyler smith i'm david Bax, but more importantly you're tyler smith and you're here and thank you for listening david <laughs> you hate when i interrupt the flow don't you yeah even after all this time it's like <laughs> this is what i say and you have the things that you say and uh yeah don't uh even though it's very easy to interrupt me right now, uh, please don't. It, you are especially easy to interrupt right now because I'm in charge of the microphone. Exactly. Like, you could just decide at any moment, like, I think Tyler's, I think Tyler's said enough. <laughs> but yeah, so, um, alright, as always, I'll give everyone a little update on how I'm doing before we get going. Um, not a whole lot of changes um, as far as movement. Um, I can still, I can uh, tense like my pectoral muscles and it's starting to spread into my shoulders and then I can also uh, tense my abdominal muscles. But I think I've said that before. The big, uh, the big progress here is in my breathing. Um, there are these things called sprints and I think I may have said this before. Um, where they just take the trait completely off of me and then I breathe on my own for as long as I can. And um, my record for a long time was 27 minutes and then I broke that a few days ago with 33 minutes and then I broke that with 56 minutes. And uh, that's a, a huge leap forward and the RT is really excited about it and uh, because as you go along and your and your lungs get stronger, uh, it uh, it becomes easier to do. And so, you know, it's probably a long way off, but at some point I am going to get off the ventilator, and that's really exciting because, you know, back when I was at the hospital, uh, the doctor said that I was unweanable, which is to say weaning yourself off of the ventilator, and he thought that I was unweanable, that I was going to be on this ventilator for the rest of my life. And, uh, you know, that's not the case. You showed, you showed that punk. Yeah, that piece of shit. But, uh, but yeah, and so it's, it's kind of what I've been thinking is like, you know, the light at the end of the tunnel is pretty far away, but it's there. And it's getting a little bit closer with every passing week. So I really appreciate everybody's encouragement, um, as always. And uh, those of you who might follow me on Twitter, you might have noticed... Uh, I had a bad day a few days ago, as I tend to do. Um, I miss my boys a lot, and I just miss my life. And uh, there are days when uh, it's really hard to hold on to hope. But uh, but yeah, and in those moments, I really appreciate everybody not only being encouraging, but being understanding. Instead of just trying to instinctively cheer me up, you just are just kind of there to, to listen or read or read as it happens but uh but yeah so that's that's the update on me and uh you know everything is slow going but it is improvement uh yeah for the listener you said you used the phrase when i was in the hospital you are now in what would you how do you characterize this place a facility a care facility uh, yeah, a facility or care facility is what I've been is the phrase I've been using. But yeah, it's it's basically like a house that was converted into uh, a care facility, and there's only six patients, and so you know we we get what we need pretty quick, and the and the nursing staff is 
incredibly attentive and very and very caring you get a sense that they all really like their job and they and they they know that what they do is important whereas when i was at the hospital i was like one of 30 patients and uh you know there there are days when they just couldn't get to you for a while um but here yeah like i just like if I just yell out, and not even yell out, but if I just say like, hello, hello, like they're here within like a minute. And uh, and that's pretty great. Uh, this is definitely way better than being in the hospital. And I do think that there's a good chance that one of the reasons that I'm doing better and one of the reasons that my breathing is getting better is because of some of the treatments here, specifically acupuncture, which, you know, I used to think was a hippy dippy bullshit, but, um, but yeah, they explained to me like sort of the science, the science behind it, and it's probably no, it's probably not a coincidence that the very first day the acupuncturist put a needle in my chest uh, was the, like the next day is when I was able to start breathing on my own, and uh, so yeah, um, yeah, this place has been great, and I'm gonna be here probably for a while, which is good. Um, because, you know, when you switch from one facility to another and you have to get used to a new staff and all that, like, that can get very stressful. But, like, I've, I've settled in here. I've been here about five weeks. And, uh, and it's pretty great. So, so thanks, everybody, for, uh, for your words of encouragement and for the love that you've shown myself and my wife and my kids. Uh, it, it really helps a lot. Yeah, I thank you, too. Um... And uh, I'll say this, if you haven't donated to the GoFundMe and would like to, uh, there's a post pinned to the top of the homepage at battleshipretention.com. But yeah, you mentioned switching facilities. This is the fifth place you've been since August. Uh, Sixth room, because at Cedars you were in two different rooms. Um, uh, Yeah, I'm glad you're going to be staying put for a while also because this is a, such an easy drive for me <laughs> yeah and uh yeah and even at, at the last care facility in oxnard i started out in one room and ended up in another so even that one i had two rooms but uh i don't i don't think i ever visited you in the first room that's the only room you were ever in that i didn't see you in yeah i was only in that one for about two weeks uh and i was i was so grateful that they transferred me because i had a roommate and uh, I'm so gl- grateful they transferred me to uh, the other room. Well, as someone who has been your roommate, I'm happy for the other guy, too. Go fuck yourself. <laughs> because, honestly, I think one of the reasons that they moved me to another room is that I would watch TV all the time. And I tried to keep my volume kind of low, but the the configuration of the room was that the speakers of the TV were pointed like right at the at my roommate, and so I think they wanted to move me into my own room just to keep him from being disturbed. But uh, going back to what you were saying, between the two of us, you were always the one that had the volume turned up. Like there's that time that I woke up at like 10 a.m. to you watching Torque. And it's just like, what the hell is going on? Um, so, you, so you were the difficult roommate in that situation. Yeah, uh, I definitely did used to watch like uh, stuff. I mean, 10 a.m. isn't even that early. Yeah. 
I remember uh, my uh, friend of the show, Frank Fielmyrath McGrath, loves to tell the story of um, one night when we were in our 20s here in uh, in Los Angeles. Uh, we were drinking, and he had a bit too much, so decided to just stay on my couch. And that's when I this is when I used to have to work super early as a PA. So he said he woke up hungover in the morning to me eating cereal and watching Sex in the City. It was like six o'clock in the morning. <laughs> yeah, it's. I think it's one of those things where it's like, I mean, you can watch a movie or a TV show any time of the day, but like, like the idea of watching Sex in the City, I guess that's kind of a casual show, but to me it's like 10 a.m., yeah, that's not that early, but it's way too early to be watching Torque. <laughs> yeah, now I'm not a morning watcher anymore. I, uh, I, I've been an old man, so I read the news. I read the news on my computer. I'm not sitting there, you know, unfolding the, uh, the, the times. <laughs> uh, but now I read the news while I eat my breakfast and drink my coffee. Uh, eventually I'm sure you're going to switch to a newspaper because you'll be like, Oh, that computer screen hurts my eyes or something like that. <laughs> yeah. Oh man. Um, I mean, I, I hate this to be the podcast about like getting old, but we're in our forties now. Uh, and, uh, Natalie and I went last weekend to, um, uh, a, a music festival called Just Like Heaven, or as I was calling it, Millennial Nostalgia Fest. Uh, and I was on my feet for, uh, I don't know, nine hours, pretty much straight, just walking around. And what that took out of me, it was insane how drained I was at the end of that. Oh, absolutely. Uh, you know, Jen and I first moved to L.A. in 2007, and so we were still in our 20s at the time. Um and then we would go to Disneyland and we could stay there all day and it was great. And then after a few years, it's like, eh, let's just go for like seven hours because we had the, the annual pass. So it's like, let's just go for seven hours. And uh, you know what? Maybe let's spend two of those hours just sitting and eating and, and watching and just taking in the uh, atmosphere. And because, uh, yeah, after a while, it's like, oh, my feet hurt. I'm tired. And it's just like... And, and the idea of being, of, of getting tired at Disneyland, like when I was younger, it's like, what are you kidding me? Like, it's so exciting. And then older me is just like, I just want to sit down. Uh, yeah, well, I guess kind of speaking of Disney, um, the thing that's happening on, on, on Twitter right now that's of, of interest. And again, you told me to preface, I don't care. But uh, uh, among the early screening critics, uh, Indiana Jones 5 is getting pilloried. Uh, yeah, it's currently, as of today, this morning, at 43%, I think, on Rotten Tomatoes. Uh, people are not happy with it. Uh, do you, I, like I said, I don't care. Do you care about that? Um, well, I will say, I mean, obviously, trailers are meant to make a movie look as good as possible, but, like, the trailers looked like a lot of fun and certainly more of a return to form than uh, uh, Kingdom of the Crystal Skull. And so... Uh, yeah, I mean, it kind of bums me out that it's that it's getting uh, poor reviews, and this is the first I've heard of it. Because, um, I mean, I care insofar as, like, you know, I like the franchise, but, uh, you know, the fourth one was such a misfire that it makes me, uh, it bums me out that it sounds like this one is, too. And, you know, something that I was... Uh, Okay, so as everyone knows, politically, I'm a little conservative. Uh, maybe not even a little, but, you know, the the thing that 
tends to frustrate me is like the way my fellow conservatives like approach movies like i hate it so much and one thing that i'll see is like like oh hey like uh, there will be like a headline from some website and uh, it'll say like oh this movie that has like a liberal bend like the user rating is super low and when i see that i'm like the user rating means nothing people can can uh post a user rating without having seen the film you know and it's just astonishing that that anybody would like use the user rating as like proof of uh, the movie being good or bad like it happens all the time all right we're not gonna get political but i do think this is a part of uh, the american conservatives overall reflexive distrust of credentialed expertise yeah absolutely and and I do think, because I've, I've heard it, honestly, from both sides, the the idea of, like, well, anybody can be a critic, especially now, like, online. Like, it's it takes nothing to be a critic. You know, and, of course, you and I, like, we actually have... We have education to back us up, but, like, some online critics don't. But at the same time, like, what really makes a critic is is someone to, who thinks who thinks critically about movies and takes them very seriously as an art form. And I think part of my, you know, from the conservative standpoint, part of my frustration is conservatives just, they don't take, obviously there are exceptions, but they don't take film seriously as an art form. They just think like, oh, this should be entertaining. And if something is pure entertainment, then what? Then it shouldn't have some kind of message, right? And, uh, and so, yeah, either, like, trying to devalue any kind of credentials because, it, because like, well, and, sorry, there's, there's a lot to say here, but, yeah, like, because I've also noted that, that conservatives, they'll quote critics all day long, as long as the critics say what they, what they agree with, you know, then they'll be like, oh, this person's credentialed and all that sort of thing. But yeah, if you if you don't agree and if you like a movie that they deem as weird or liberal or whatever, then yeah, they they cannot discount your credentials fast enough. Um, and yeah, it's just uh, it's just so frustrating because, as I think I've said on the show before, like even let's let's say for the sake of argument that films that movies were just meant to be entertainment. Well, there's still thousands upon thousands of artistic decisions that go into making a movie entertaining, you know? And so even then, it's still an art form in its own way. And so, yeah, it's it's very frustrating for me uh, because I personally don't see any conflict between my political beliefs and approaching film in, a, in an empathetic and human and artistic way, like, I don't see any clash there, and yet so many critics seem to do so to such an extent that, like, a few years ago when I was writing for the Daily Wire, and I, I wrote about, like, the, the, the 10 best movies of the 2010s, and in the comments, you know, a lot of people were like, I haven't heard of these, or this movie sucked, or whatever, and then one person said, like, like I don't think this guy's writing for the right site. Shouldn't it, shouldn't he be over at the Huffington Post? I'm like, it's like, are you saying that my love of Inside Lewin Davis uh, means I can't possibly be a conservative? Like it's so stupid. Yeah, uh, who would who would have thought? Um, 
<laughs> anyway, uh, look, we got a whole big thing out of me talking about Indiana Jones and the Dial of Destiny. Uh, so let's... Um, but real quick, I want to tell you about tweakedaudio.com earbuds. Um, they're professional quality earbuds um, that come in a variety of stylish styles and colorful colors that look great. They sound great. Uh, I use them each and every day of my life. Tyler will eventually get back to using them each and every day of his life. Today I was listening... It, it, here's a problem with liking metal sometimes. Is that sometimes a metal band will have like a really metal name in a way that you kind of have to apologize for but then they become they're good enough that it's like well i have to talk about say pig destroyer or whatever like that's like that's a culturally vital band uh in the 21st century um so i was listening today to um a couple of the new songs off of the brand new cattle decapitation album and uh this is a band that's been around I don't know, 15 years, but uh, they seem to keep getting better, I guess, somehow. And the new album is called Terracite, as in like a parasite, but the earth. Terrace, T-E-R-R-A site. Look, here's, if there's one thing you should know about metal people is they love wordplay. They love a portmanteau. They love a pun. It's one of the silliest things about metal is how often there are puns in band names. But uh, yeah, so Cattle Decapitation, Terracite, Sounded great at my tweakedaudio.com earbuds. They're available at a low, low price at tweakedaudio.com. But if you use the offer code pretension at checkout, you get one third off that low, low price and no shipping charges. So please go to tweakedaudio.com and use the offer code pretension. Tyler, you have something to say? Yeah, that thing about like uh, like the names of bands, like there are some bands that just like decide on like a silly name. Like I remember in the 90s, even when I was young, I was like, what happens if the butthole surfers decide to put out a really serious album like <laughs> at some point i feel like they're going to be like alec guinness at the end of bridge on the river Kwai, where like what have i done <laughs> yeah yeah I, I i do wonder about that like uh uh but then at a certain point sometimes like bands if they become big and, and important enough the name no longer means what it name but it the name no longer means what it means it just means the band you know like no one thinks about like literally what is a pearl jam yeah. you know what i mean it's just pearl jam that's the name of the band yeah absolutely and uh but i do think you know again to go back to uh, what i just referenced like if you <laughs> if your name has butthole in it like it's going to be real hard to come back from that but you know but yeah in the same way like like limp biscuit like i know what that means and it's super gross uh but you're but you're right eventually the term starts to mean much more just the band itself than anything that came before it yeah um but yeah the, the, it's a particular problem with metal and like bands with gross names like anal stab wound like becoming good and now it's like i have to talk about anal stab wound uh okay on that we should throw to the commercial right this episode is brought to you in part by noom forget one size fits all diets with noom you get a personalized weight loss plan that's tailored to your lifestyle no food is off limits enjoy your favorites while discovering healthier habits noom's users love the flexible approach blending psychology and biology to help you lose weight in a way that's sustainable for you and great news for foodies noom just released the noom kitchen cookbook 
with 100 delicious, healthy recipes. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com. That's N-O-O-M.com. Grab your copy of The Noom Kitchen wherever books are sold. And we're back. And we are uh, ready to, you know what? Let's get into it, shall we? Uh, shall we? Yes. Okay, so uh, as per, so this is the first episode episode you and I have done together, I think, since we did Tyler's take on the Oscars. Is that right? Yeah, I guess so. And even then, that's kind of a sprawling, broad kind of episode. This is this is the first, like, true BP episode that I've done since, uh, since last August when we talked about uh, the trivialization of film. Wow, yeah. Um, but, uh, but the last time we recorded together was your movie journal in which you talked about having seen Babylon. We both really liked Babylon. And so uh, you said inspired by uh, Babylon and how uh, good it happens to be. Uh, let's talk about old Hollywood movies, right? Yeah. Um, or sir, sorry, movies about old Hollywood. Because I, I need to clarify... Because I, uh, I'm, I'm not even entirely sure that my list is is right. Um, what do you mean by movies about old Hollywood? Well, I was about to ask you the same thing, even though it was my topic. Uh, because instinctively, I think of like, like pre-code. Um, but at the same time, I also decided to sort of expand my uh, my view, and it's like, okay, maybe any movie that is talking about Hollywood of, like, even 30 or 40 years before. It doesn't have to necessarily go back to the silent era or the pre-code era. And so, like, I'll just throw one out there just that I feel like could could work. Like, L.A. Confidential, you know, that came out in 97, but it's talking about L.A. and Hollywood um, in the early 50s. And so it's like, you know... Because you and I are big nerds and we understand that film has been around since the 1890s, it's like, oh, the 50s, that's not that old. But of course, for most, as I've come to realize both as a teacher and as someone who talks about film with the uh, nursing staff, uh, apparently anything before 2000 is old. And sometimes before 2010. Well, yeah, I mean, you're, uh, I don't know what her title is, but the woman who was helping you with your breakfast this morning was uh, born in 2004, I think. Oh, good God. Yeah, <laughs> um, uh, yeah so I guess I, what I, because I also started with it being like, yeah, that like 20s and 30s Hollywood um, and teens, but I basically came to just do like basically any period piece that's about hollywood uh would would qualify which means that certain things that i maybe initially thought of don't qualify because like a star is born and sunset boulevard are not period pieces they're about hollywood at the time right yeah i yeah i thought about sunset boulevard as well and i think Yes, it takes place in 1950, but, like, so much of that film is about the difference between Hollywood of, of yesteryear and the, at the time, 
current Hollywood. Like that, I, I would count that as a movie that is about old Hollywood, but it doesn't take place during that time, but it's very much about it. That's a really interesting point of view. Yeah, I, I think then that, that would count. So I, um, I organized my list roughly chronologically based, not based on release, but based on when the movie is set. Ooh. So I started in the silent era. Yeah. Uh, but this is, these are like the first movie I have because within that I alphabet, alphabetize. So I have The Artist as the first movie on my list because that is, uh, even though that's a, what year is The Artist? 2010? 11. 2011. Uh, right, because The King's Speech was 2010, yeah. right? Um, that is a movie that is about the uh, 1920s in Hollywood. Yeah, uh, that was definitely one that I thought about. And, and that's a situation where it's like it's about old Hollywood and it is trying to emulate old Hollywood. And, uh, you know, it's a film that I don't think much about. But in retrospect, and, and at the time I thought it was good, but I didn't love it. But in retrospect, when I think about it, I think it's really good. And I think it does capture a lot of the spirit of old Hollywood along with you know, a lot of the movies that we are going to be talking about are all about the silent era transitioning into the sound era, and uh, and this one captures that as well. Um, and it's one, of, but it's also such a wonderful reveal where you wonder, like, why is Jean Desjardins' character like, why is he so scared to uh, transition into sound? And then at the very end he actually does say something and you hear the accent and you're like oh oh and it makes like all these other things fall in, fall into place and uh yeah i re i really like the artist i haven't seen it in a while i feel like i should rewatch it yeah i haven't seen it i don't think since the theater um it's one of those movies though that is like i think when a movie that a lot of non-movie people love wins best picture the movie people tend to like step a little too hard on the backlash gas do you know what i mean oh yeah absolutely i mean it happened with coda too which is a perfectly nice movie yeah. but it's just like uh and i think the artist is probably better than coda but i haven't seen it in a long time but i do think the backlash against the artist is is more a backlash against you know whatever like the tree of life or whatever not winning best picture i'm just trying to think of other 2011 movies um uh yeah uh I can't even think of any. <laughs> uh, uh, the Help and Moneyball and The Descendants. Okay. I was going with like House of Pleasures, which is like, a, that was never going to win Best Picture. I don't know why I drew a blank on 2011 movies, which is a year that I generally consider a good year. I was just uh, drawing a blank. Oh well, I was I was listing Best Picture nominees, but obviously 2011 had like Take Shelter, which is amazing. Oh yeah. Um, but yeah. Uh, also, I think there is this. You know, we've all uh, we've always talked about like the Nate, or maybe there's something I talked about more on more than one lesson because Josh and I were going through all the best pictures, and like there are just some movies that instinctively, like you just inherently they feel like a best picture and there's always like a really like a weighty quality to them and so any movie that is that could be seen as kind of kind of facile uh facile pardon me um like the artist mm -hmm. i think there's a tendency amongst movie people to be like well yeah i guess it's entertaining and i guess there's some real artistry there but come on like i don't feel bad at the end of it 
So how could that possibly win Best Picture? Also, I think movie people like us sometimes, especially if we tend to like gravitate toward other movie people, we forget how regular people think. Like the idea of the artist a silent film as being like the popular easy choice uh does not represent the, the average moviegoers point of view i remember people saying in 2017 or whatever that like oh the shape of water that's the the obvious choice like really this like dark like horror romance about fish fucking is the is the easy choice uh yeah i mean you, you saw this the, the to a lesser extent, but like when the new Sight and Sound list came out last fall, oh, yeah. uh, and and Jean Dilman was like at number one, there was a like a cohort of like film Twitter people who were like, "Come on, guys, the, the movie's not that challenging." You know, <laughs> it's like you have no idea what regular people like who uh, you know whose favorite movie is like Zootopia or something like how they would take. And not being mean, I like Zootopia just fine. But uh, anyway, we we do ourselves a disservice by being too out of touch, I think, sometimes. Yeah, and it is just one of those things where, as is the case with anything, whether it be like you hang out with people of the same religion or the same political philosophy, and after a while, you don't even realize how echoey that echo chamber is. And with movies, yeah, like, it's... And and this is where being a teacher has really taught me some stuff because, like, there are movies that I would reference so casually and they were, like, super mainstream movies, but they're mainstream movies of, like, 30 or 40 years ago. And it's just like, well, obviously, we've all seen Jaws, right? And, like, for you and me, it's like that is the most obvious type of movie that everyone has seen. And then you realize, like, oh, right, uh... Yeah, most people don't think in terms of film history at all. Like the one like the one older movie that everyone seems to have seen is The Wizard of Oz. But beyond that, it's nothing as a guarantee, but for us it's like, well, this is you know, th- this is the height of mainstream, so why wouldn't you see it? And uh yeah, it's it's just so easy to forget how uh and and we don't mean to be condescending when when we say this, but like how normal people approach film. Yeah, no, I don't mean to be condescending at all. In fact, I'm, it's it's people like us that I'm trying to like take yeah. to task to say like be cognizant. Um, by the way, you said 30, 40 years. Jaws is coming up on on fifty year yeah. years old. When you said 30, 40 years, I was like, is Tyler talking about Basic Instinct to his to his students? <laughs> Uh, okay, so we don't need to talk much about Babylon because we talked about it last time. But then again, that's what you're referencing again. Very much that transition. Yeah. Uh, it seems to be like have left such a scar on Hollywood uh, that they can't keep. They can't stop telling stories about transitioning from from uh, from silent to sound. And I think Babylon is is unique as a little bit because it's about from silent to sound, but it's also like. Hollywood being largely unregulated by the culture and then very quickly moves into like, oh no, now everyone's watching us and we can't be what we used to be. You know, I mean, it's called Babylon and I think a lot of people think of like pre-code Hollywood as Babylon. And, uh, And in that film, you know, one of the benefits of it being so long is you're able to see that transition without it being too abrupt. Uh, and you think of like the the beginning of the film 
versus the end of the film and uh and you're like oh yeah this is actually very different um so yeah i think that is about two different types of transitions not purely an artistic one yeah um you're making me want to jump around here but like uh singing in the rain obviously is referenced in babylon and is also again about that that transition yeah and and yeah, one of the reasons that I like Babylon is how much it references Singing in the Rain without being super obvious about it. Like, you know, when you think of Margot Robbie's character, you're like, oh, yeah, she's very much like Lena Lamont as far as like her voice and stuff like that. And, uh, and you know, there's a moment where like Brad Pitt is saying like, I love you, I love you, I love you. And it's like, oh, that's fun. Yeah. Um, but yeah, and... And I do think it's just so interesting how these, uh, some of these movies, like I think Babylon sort of sees this transition as like tragic as opposed to Singing in the Rain, which I think is kind of neutral about it, if not maybe like almost celebratory of it because like, you know, we couldn't possibly have, uh, you know, we couldn't have these songs if we were still in the silent era. And so, yeah, I do think that when approaching old Hollywood, there's kind of this weird uh, mixture of of being wistful about it, while also recognizing the, uh, you know, the the positives of the transition. Uh, yeah, and then when you mentioned the the like the code and or or at least like the uh, morality, you know, um, Watchmen or whatever. Um, I'm glad you started this is I'm jumping around I'm glad you started with LA Confidential because that is a movie that is like a crime movie about the cops that just like touches on Hollywood and so I, I had some of those in here too because um, you reminded me of The Aviator and like how there's a whole thing where Howard Hawks has to like approve or, or argue to get the posters uh, uh, of, the, of the movie uh, approved yeah you know uh, in talk in thinking about this I was inclined to exclude biopics, but at the same, but I don't know why, you know, like, you know, there was a movie about Charlie Chaplin and... Which I saw and remember so little of. Yeah, I mean, I saw it when it was like new on video, so I'm like a fucking 10 year old watching Chaplin, it's like I have no frame of reference for this, but I do remember a lot of moments about it, and, uh, and yeah, it's, I think it's weird remembering remembering it as a 41 year old's like i don't think i would actually like it that much i think it would probably be a, a little bit boring and i hate saying this but it's, it's directed by richard attenborough and he's somebody who i think as a director is not really that interested in like flair i think he's just very interested in telling the story in a very straightforward way like gandhi um but uh but yeah, like Chaplin was like a huge figure in in silent film, and that's when you get to like The Aviator because you've got like Douglas Fairbanks in there and like all these huge figures. And when we think about Howard Hughes, we think about—I mean, it's called The Aviator, you know. Not did I say Howard Hawks earlier? I think I did. Did I? I do it all the time. Oh, yeah, maybe. Did I say Howard No, Hawks? you said Howard Hughes right now, which is what was making me thinking, like, did I accidentally say Howard Hawks? Because I do that all the time. Yeah, um, I remember one time a while ago when I was, like, typing stuff up for the beepies, and, uh, I, and 
I wrote uh, Trent Reznor and Atticus Finch. (laughs) And it's like my fingers just refuse to type anything else. Um, But uh, but yeah, so... Can I tell you my memory of seeing Chaplin? The main thing I remember, because I was also probably like 11 or whatever when I saw it, and talk about changing morality, Chaplin, there used to be PG-13 movies that had nudity in them as long as it was like non-sexual and chaplin has like a backstage vaudeville thing where all the women are like in the dressing room and it's like a bunch of topless women and in my that burned in my 11 year old boy's boy memory but i don't remember much else uh beside that but that's interesting to like to think that like um 18 again with george burns also has like there's a scene in a like a they're painting like a nude model so again it's completely non-sexual there's just like a naked woman in the middle of the the room but also, like, um, going even further to PG, both Spaceballs and Eight Men Out have the word fuck in them. Oh, yeah. And they're PG. It's interesting to see how these things have have changed. Um, coming all the way back around to uh, Howard Hughes, uh, we can't forget the other non-biopic, the sort of, like, historical fiction, Rules Don't Apply. Oh, okay. Where Warren Beatty plays uh, Howard Hughes much later in life than than most of of the aviator but i can't remember did you see it no. oh okay you tyler didn't see it that's um so you can't join me and uh friend of the show jake bart in the pro rules don't apply camp um because well, most people don't like it i don't think yeah well i think scott loved it right like he really enjoyed it um by the way i also i also have this image of like you know, years after you see Chaplin, someone says, hey, did you ever see Chaplin? And you say, yeah, that movie's hot. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's all I think of. <laughs> um, uh, yeah, okay, so where were we? I mentioned rules don't apply. I don't have much more to say about that um, in, the, in the sense that it's about... Uh, but I guess it does have kind of a... Uh, uh, Manuel and Nelly, uh, Manny and Nelly type of relationship in that Alden Ehrenreich's character um, is someone who works for Howard Hughes and um, uh, what's her name? Lil- one of the Lilies, Lily Collins, I think, uh, is in Rules Don't Apply. She's like uh, an up and coming starlet who is who is being groomed potentially in more than one way uh, by by. Uh, Howard um, yeah it is Lou Collins uh, yeah I I would love to know what you think of Rules Don't Apply yeah um, I think at the time I was really curious about it uh, but I think I as you mentioned like you're you're kind of in the minority I saw so many negative reviews of it that I kind of had this thought of like well you know I only have a certain amount of time and uh I'd rather watch a movie that people think are is really great. And I, I hate that I have that thought because, you know, there are some movies that people are split on. And, well, Babylon being an example, a lot of people don't like it. I still watched it, and I loved it. And so, yeah, I even though I respect film critics, you know, you just can't... You, you can't automatically go by a Rotten Tomatoes score, you know? Yeah, I mean, I respect film criticism... of film critics are idiots, right? I'd say that's about right. Um, Especially these days. I wrote a... Back in uh, grad school, I wrote uh, an essay about what... uh, 
I think I called it the vulgarization of film criticism, like vulgarization in every definition of the word, uh, specifically the idea of it being so, so common that, uh, and, you know, and I'm fine with like democratization of film criticism, but at the same time, when you do that, it is going to uh, dilute things a little bit. And uh, yeah, and that that's kind of a shame. And it's easy for me to say, uh, or you to say, because we actually went to school for it, as we were talking about earlier, but, and, and you know, some like people who have no college education at all can be tremendously insightful. But at the same time, I think it's just, it's super easy to be a critic these days uh, without and just being like kind of a populist or a studio shill or access journalism type of hack there's a lot of those out there Um, uh, speaking of movies that depict Charlie Charlie Chaplin sorry Charles Chaplin is how he likes to be known uh, you and I are both huge fans of the cat's meow yeah that was one of the first movies I thought about um, because uh yeah, and and obviously I think um, Bogdanovich is is very fascinated by old Hollywood. Um, I never saw I never saw Nickelodeon, but is that about? Uh, I think it is. I never saw it either. But um, but yeah. Oh man, I love the cat's meow because it's. I mean, maybe this is still the case, but when I think. You know, when you think of old Hollywood, like there's a re- like going back to the aviator, you have this guy who is like insanely rich and eventually got into like planes and stuff and had a political a political element to him, but he also produced movies. And so when you look at the cat's meow, you have like just this mingling of like just rich moguls and movie stars and gossip columnists, like and everyone just is kind of mixed together um and and i feel like that was definitely the case with old hollywood because people were still trying to figure out what hollywood actually was and uh and what role it would play in the larger culture and i feel like that's something that you get from the cat's meow is just this uh this blending of different worlds um and uh but yeah it's also just I feel like you and I have talked about it quite a bit and way more than anyone else has talked about it because I do love that movie. I think it's insanely well made, very well acted, and uh, and yeah, and it's always nice to see like someone like Edward Herman who everyone kind of like, everyone has an idea of him like based on Gilmore Girls and stuff and then you see something like this and you're like, oh right, he can do a lot more than what we thought. Yeah, um, not that he's not good on Gilmore Girls. Or- yeah. Uh, may he rest in peace um, and also yeah talk about a great cast just all around um, alright so sticking with we're getting out of this era but I also wanted to mention a movie uh, that I really like I don't think you've seen called Mrs. Parker and the Vicious Circle oh. it's uh, yeah I haven't seen it but I know that's a movie you've loved for a long time yeah Jennifer Jason Lee plays Dorothy Parker the writer and there is a part like with as we will see depicted with um, John Mahoney's character who's based on Faulkner in Barton Fink like a lot of established writers did spend time uh, um, in Hollywood so there's only a part of the movie in which we're in Hollywood and it's mostly about the writers so you don't get um, a lot of 
the thing you're talking about with the aviator of seeing like uh fairbanks and stuff but i, I was scrolling through the cast list to see if i can remember anyone and keith carradine does play will rogers um in mrs barker in the vicious circle what what year did that come out i guess 94 or 94 oh that's later than i thought okay uh so then getting into the 30s i mentioned barton fink um i don't know there's a lot to be said about uh about that right oh absolutely i mean it's just it, that's that's a film that like it's about old hollywood but it's also about hollywood as a concept um and la as a concept and i mean it's easy to say that the film just depicts it as, you know depicts it as hell but it's also like this hell that well i guess the nature of hell is that you can't get out of it but the idea of like it being a specifically a creative hell where at the end of the film like he's written this script that he's very proud of uh but they're not going to produce it and the the and uh the the lipnick character basically says like uh you're under contract so you have to keep working for us but we're not going to produce anything you write like that is such a horrendous situation to be in and it really captures the the nature of studios you know like you get into uh i mean obviously i'm a big orson welles fan but like when you hear about what studios did to magnificent ambersons that they like actually burned the stuff they cut out like that is really vindictive and you look at something like barton fink and you're like yeah that tracks yeah uh there does seem to be something about now i'm gonna okay I'm sorry, I'm, my brain's getting ahead of my mouth. I think a lot of movies about old Hollywood are, a lot of them are written and directed by men. Mm-hmm. And a lot of times they seem to be about socially maladjusted guys brushing up against beautiful women or, or fame or stuff. Now, because it's still the movies, these socially maladjusted guys get played by Alton Ehrenreich and Diego Calva, who are like incredibly like charming, good-looking people. But uh, Barton would kind of be one of those. As would another movie from the or that's set in the '30s. Uh, I know we dare not speak the director's name, but uh, Cafe Society um, is another one where where uh, Jesse Eisenberg comes to Hollywood to work for his powerful agent uncle, played by Steve Carell, uh, and he starts a uh, 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 and he has an infatuation with with Christian Stewart, who uh, I don't know. I don't want to give the movie away for people who haven't seen it, but I don't, no, one's, no one's watching Woody Allen movies anymore. It turns out she's having an affair with Steve Carell uh, at the same time. I can't. Remember, did you see Cafe Society? No, I didn't. I had heard. You know, that's another one that I had heard mixed things about. Um, yeah, it's. I'm, I'm, I'm not going to say like rules don't apply. I'm not going to say oh go see Cafe Society. It's interesting. Yeah, I'm sure it is because like obviously. Woody Allen is a very uh, controversial figure at this point, to say the least. But as an artist and as a writer, he he always has a very interesting point of view. And so, you know, something like and so in a situation like Cafe Society, uh, where he where he's writing about old Hollywood, like you know, he's been a part of it for so long that I feel like he would have a unique perspective on it. Uh, all right, let's move. From the third, late 30s and early 40s, uh, two movies I know Tyler loves to talk about, uh, RKO 281 and Mank. Yeah. By the way, let me know if I skip over anything you had in your head, because I know you don't have a physical list like I do. 
Yeah, um, I was thinking about both of those movies, uh, because, uh, but then I thought, like, oh, well, maybe if we're only talking about, like, pre-code or silent movies, so I kind of, I kind of put them out of my head, but, uh, but yeah, absolutely, like, both of them have, have to do with the making of Citizen Kane, and I have issues with Mank mostly because I just, I know the actual story, but that's, that shouldn't have an impact on how I think of the film. There are plenty of movies that, uh, that, you know, change the real story for artistic purposes, so I shouldn't have a problem with it with Mank, but I also feel like Mank is incredibly convoluted. Like, it's one of those things, I've read a lot of Orson Welles biographies, I know everything that's going on i know all the characters and then and their relation to each other and even i was like i can't keep track of this this is this is crazy um but yeah rko 281 like going back to uh you know the the way that studios even as even as late as the 40s the way that studios and newspapers and wealth like the way they all blend together to such an extent that someone like um william randolph hearst who has nothing outside of trying to make Marion Davies into like a a serious movie star instead of the comedic actress she was like outside of that yeah he really has nothing to do with Hollywood but he recognizes how powerful Hollywood is which means he needs to be actively involved if he's gonna hold on to his power in the eyes of the the public and so you look at RKO 281 and then you look at Mank which also has a lot to do with politics and and you just get like again uh a hollywood that's that people are still trying to figure out what role how big of a role it plays uh in the larger culture and how much culture can have an influence on hollywood and so yeah i on that in that regard i like both movies um i like i don't like mank quite as much but uh but i think they both have some really interesting things to say uh, all right, you mentioned Hearst, and that dovetailed with something else I was thinking of. So go on this little journey with me. When David Milch went to HBO to pitch what would become Deadwood, he actually initially pitched a show that was set in ancient Rome. And they were like, ooh, we actually just made this deal with John Milius to do a Rome show. Can you transplant this idea to somewhere else? And he came up with Deadwood because both of the... The, the thing that he was really wanting to get at was the idea of people coming to a lawless place and just based on natural human order and tendency towards society and toward one another forming something out of it and uh obviously george hurst comes to uh play a role on in deadwood season three and in the i mean really starting in season two he's just not physically there until season three and in the movie um uh, in the same way, you were talking about things like Babylon being like a Wild West and 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 a Babylon, and and by the time you get to Barton Fink and Mank and R- RKO two eighty one, you're seeing like the business of Hollywood really coming into like being run by the people, the Hursts of the world, who are who have amassed the power and have figured out the lay of the land and uh, and and can. Uh, hold the creatives at their at their whim uh if they if they want to yeah and yeah and that's i think that's a good point because like if you look at something like the cat's meow you realize like so thomas ince you know you and i know this from film history like thomas thomas ince was more than just a producer like he was a guy who like 
helped turn Hollywood, like make Hollywood more efficient when it comes to like making movies and stuff. And the idea that he, now obviously, Cat's Meow is not a true account. It's just a suggestion, but one way or another, people knew that uh, Thomas Ince was killed in some way. And the idea that that could happen and then Hollywood just keeps on going, like suggests that, yeah, in the early days, like, it really was, to go back to what you said, it really was like the Wild West where, like, you know, you had the Fatty Arbuckle thing, you had William Desmond Taylor, you had uh, Thomas Ence, and, like, all of these, like, scandalous things that probably ushered in, uh, you know, the more, the, the code, the Hayes Code, but at the same time, that it was just so crazy that there was actual murder and uh, actual, like, violence involved, and yet uh, Hollywood didn't seem that affected by it because, you know, in the same way, if someone was killed in Deadwood, it's like, oh, gosh, that's a bummer. Well, who wants a drink, you know? And, uh, and yeah, I think that's a really good point. Um, for those who didn't go to film school, haven't looked this up, a little bit of uh, trivia about, or I don't know, trivia, just that, tribute to the lasting legacy of Thomas Inch, Thomas Ince. The Thomas Ince studio, he had his own studio lot called the Thomas Ince or, or maybe Thomas H. Ince Studios, I can't remember. Uh, and it is still there and it's still a functioning lot. It became the uh, Selznick lot that you would see at the beginning of like David O. Selznick Presents. That building is still there that, that, you, uh, that, that you see. And then it became an independent uh, uh, lot called the Culver studios for a long time and then for the past few years it has been the home of amazon studios uh still there still i mean i think amazon knocked down some of the buildings to build office buildings but there's still sound studios it's still uh it's still there that that thomas ince legacy even though people don't maybe know his name if you're casual a casual film fan uh it's still there and that lot is uh still a fun cool place to to walk around one of my first pa gigs uh was on that on that lot Oh, that's that. That's cool. I, one thing that I do like on a, on a side note, I do like that even though Hollywood is always evolving and getting bigger and all that, that there still does seem to be a a real respect uh, for old Hollywood. Like you know, I interned on the Jim Henson lot, which was previously the Chaplin lot, and uh, you know, like you're walking around and it's this, you know, this tiny little like boutique studio um but it's like oh i'm gonna go to the vending machines oh right in front of the vending machines is uh, a a slab of cement with charlie chaplin's like handprints and footprints and and like and uh as you drive in there's a uh like um a statue i guess of kermit the frog but he's wearing like the little tramp uh, outfit like the bowler hat and he's got the mustache and the baggy suit and all that and so between that and like you know I've been on the Paramount lot as you have been and just you know they really do seem to have a, a an appreciation for their history even if maybe it doesn't play that big of a role in the stuff they do now like there is this understanding of like where 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 movies came from and they're not quite so quick to uh to erase that even if they found it like shameful in some ways yeah uh paramount's great because it's like original you know um and then sony is the old mgm uh studios lot which is which is cool the old um the old warner brothers is just called the lot 
now uh, and it still part partially functions as a lot i think they knocked down some of it and built built like uh you know luxury apartments or whatever happens in west hollywood now but it's uh right by cafe formosa uh if you know um uh, listeners maybe don't know um but uh it's right down the street from where um uh Saeed's wife got hit by a car in season six in the flash sideways of, of lost um, <laughs> i like that you're like oh the formosa cafe you don't know about that but however obviously we all know we can all picture the intersection in season six when Saeed, Saeed's wife gets hit by a car obviously <laughs> um and then uh what I had other oh but they're not all there sadly the um the original fox lot is now a food for less uh at sunset and western um but I don't I think it's still there so um the post production facility company deluxe originally started as part as like part of fox way way back it's like over 100 years um and broke off and for a long time i don't know if it's still there because i don't know if anyone is still printing film but where deluxe printed films was behind that food for less like the, the deluxe building was still on the old essentially what would have been the old fox lot i don't know if it's still there because i don't know who's printing films anymore i only got to go into that building uh once or twice in my entire life yeah, it would, you know, a after everything I just said about Hollywood trying to preserve its history, it would seem that the one thing it wants to erase is Fox. Like, one way or another, it's like, it's like we will make this like it never existed. Yeah, it's so, I mean, you and I watched the Banshees of Inishirin together and just like the thing the the same fanfare but it just Searchlight Studios, it does feel like you're in like the other universe in fringe where like fox somehow never happened but everything else is the same or it's like uh it's like a really low stakes george orwell novel where it's just like ah <laughs> oh, fox was doing things we didn't like so now you'll never remember them uh so we're getting into like the 50s here uh but speaking of film running as a as a business running a tight ship uh hail caesar um oh, definitely yeah. Yeah, I, I love that movie more than most people. Um, and I think a lot of people think it's really disjointed and all that. Like, And it's like, well, that's the nature of it. It's about this one producer going from one production to another, and they're all going to be very different. But yeah, and just, you know, the Coen brothers have, a, as you mentioned, Martin Fink, like the Coen brothers have such a love for old Hollywood, like sometimes they'll try to emulate it with like the man who wasn't there or Hudsucker Proxy, and other times they want to make a movie about it. And I think Hail Caesar like captures the, the whimsy and the fun, but also the stress and the constant spin of Hollywood as well. And uh, yeah, I absolutely love it. Uh, so this happens sometimes when we do these episodes, like when we do our profiles, that like I start to develop an overarching like theme and then I feel like I'm kind of like forcing things into that, you know? But getting to the 50s now, I feel like we can see a few things about m movies about people who didn't fit in in Hollywood or who got chewed up by it or never got in or got cast out. So I've got three in a row here that kind of all fit that general description. Uh, Blonde from last year. Uh, Ed Wood. Oh my. 
and Gods and Monsters. Oh my gosh. Shame on me for uh, not thinking of, of Ed Wood. Gods and Monsters, like, as much as I really like that movie, it's not a movie I think about very much, but Ed Wood is actually, yeah, really wonderful. And given the nature of the 50s, which is like, you know, it's the Eisenhower era, it's post-war, um, and it really is about, to a certain extent, you know, um, conformity and just everyone kind of just doing what's expected of them, which is why, yeah, uh, and there were filmmakers and actors and actresses and producers who were kind of doing their own thing. Um, and, and that's going to be, that's always going to be interesting fodder for a story or a movie is that this idea of like, hey, you remember this time when everyone had like the white pick offense and was like striving for this, this, uh, this very specific definition of the American dream. Well, with it, well, you know, there were these people working on the fringes and they deserve to be recognized just as much as anybody else, if not more so. Yeah. Um, well, uh, I feel like we should be trying to put a button on this because we've been going a long time and um, I know that talking a lot is uh, not always easy for you. Um, so... But to bring it back to Babylon, you, you, you described Babylon as a tragedy, which it, which it is. Uh, but one thing that is true of Manny and of Alden Ehrenreich and Rules and Apply and, and maybe even uh, obviously Ed Wood in some ways is there's still this draw, like this, this like Hollywood is the, as the machine is going to like not treat you well. It doesn't care about you, um, which is true. I, uh, we should have our friend Colin Marshall back on to talk about this, but there is, um, he once linked to an essay about Los Angeles as a place, like the architecture of Los Angeles is designed to tell you that you're not important. <laughs> um, uh, uh, which is something that I actually kind of like about living in Los Angeles. I don't need smoke blown up my ass by like, oh, I'm living in, you know, New York City, you know, the Gotham, the greatest city in the world. No, I, I live in a place that makes me earn it. Um, <laughs> uh, all right, sorry. Um, so a lot of these movies do seem to be about that. Uh, as I guess that's all I was saying is that the 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 allure remains, even though most of these movies have some criticisms about Hollywood. It is impossible to not to to deny that the people who make these movies and most of the people who go to watch them still love it. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. I mean, you know, when you live here, this is something that I've said uh, several times, though I'm not sure if I ever said it on the podcast, is that, you know, when you live here, you just say like, hey, I'm going down to Hollywood. It's just another neighborhood and a pretty crappy one at that. I mean, increasingly, it's pretty, uh, it's, you know, there's a lot of, like, gastropubs and ho boutique hotels. It's become more more touristy. And also, fucking restaurants close at, like, 10. Yeah. It's so annoying. Yeah. Be open late. And between that and just, like, how many gift shops do you need? Like, there's just, it's like, well, we, you know, in case people don't want to cross the street, we'll open one over here. And But that's the thing is, we know that because we live here that it's kind of this you know crappy area and when it's not crappy it's tacky um but and yet you still like when i watch certain tv shows or something it'll be like it's like uh from hollywood you know 
And it, it speaks to this idea that, like, Hollywood is definitely, it's so much more than a place now that it is, and it probably always has been, like, just almost a state of mind, or, like, it's seen as sort of almost a, almost a philosophical destination, you know, where, like, I'm gonna go out to Hollywood, and, and people, when they say that, they're not talking about the place, they're talking about the idea. Yeah, um, the... Number one thing I think of uh, when you mention, like, from Hollywood, and I think of The Price is Right, oh, yeah. which actually is Hollywood, right? That's, like, by the, by the farmer's market, that's essentially Hollywood, right? Um, but I remember it would be, like, sent back, this is pre-internet, like, you could apply, like, and it would give an address, and it would say, Hollywood, California, which it, it wasn't until I moved here that I really realized, like, oh, that's just... A neighborhood but then again you and i are valley people who all do that like yeah. i write panorama city california even though that's just a neighborhood in los angeles yeah. but that's what i put as my address but that's a valley thing uh you wouldn't understand it's a valley thing um but because of that because of that association with price is right hollywood cbs hollywood studios the recent uh news that they're moving to glendale mm. made me sad <laughs> yeah i don't know if you heard about that no, I didn't. Yeah. yeah, Fremantle Media is building a brand new studio in Glendale, and, and uh, Price is Right is moving there. Man, man. You know, say what you will about Hollywood, at least it has a personality. I worked in Glendale, and that is like, right down to the name, it is like the opposite of a personality. But to go back to... Uh, it's, uh, it's just like Pasadena Jr.? <laughs> Is that, is that what Glendale is? Exactly. It's like, but also I should say, um, Glendale. Even though Little Armenia is in Hollywood, Glendale is where a lot of Armenians live, and so there's a lot of great food in Glendale. If you if you're looking for it, uh, yes, you're you're right. Uh, but when I think of Glendale, it's like, all right, you know Pasadena, you know Los Feliz and Silver Lake. It's between all of those places that you would rather be. <laughs> One time I was driving. My wife and our in-laws back from Vegas, and my, my mother-in-law fell asleep in the car, and she woke up and looked around, and she was like, oh, are we in Pasadena? And I said, no, Glendale, and she said, mm, same difference. Yeah, well, it's like, hey, do you want to go to Pasadena, but you don't want to be as relaxed? Go to Glendale. <laughs> okay, um, let's wrap up, but I want to, I don't know if you have any more you wanted to list off. I have some from later, like, late 50s into the 60s. Uh, I mean, I... Hitchcock, not a good movie. I barely remember it. Uh, did you ever see the, the Last of Robin Hood? It's a movie that came out in 2013. Takes place in the late 50s. Kevin Klein plays Errol Flynn at oh. the end of his life when he's having an affair with a 15-year-old played by Dakota Fanning, uh, and it's directed by the uh, what are their names? The two guys who made Still Alice. Um, right. So like. It's a, it's a good, interesting movie, and Susan Susan Sarandon plays Dakota Fanning's mom, who's, like, into the idea because uh, Errol Flynn is Errol Flynn or whatever. It's a it's an interesting movie. I believe Kevin Klein played Errol Flynn in Chaplin as well. I guess he's just got to look for it. Yeah. Um, or, or you know what? Maybe he played Douglas Fairbanks. I don't remember. But either way, like, those, like, swashbuckling theatrical types, like, Kevin Klein's good at that sort of thing. Yeah. Uh, so I got matinee on here. Oh my god! Um, I mean, even though that takes place in Florida, it's about Hollywood distribution and and, and publicity and stuff like that. Yeah. Um, I've got Who Framed Roger Rabbit. Sure, absolutely. That's that. Both of those are great examples. 
and now we're getting into the uh, we got saving mr banks um which is speaking of old studios studio lots i mean um i like that enough of the disney lot is preserved that it can play itself in a movie that takes place 50 years before the movie came out and you know saving mr banks is a movie that i think it's it's unique in that when you go into it, it's like, oh, it's produced by Walt Disney Studios. It's about the making of Mary Poppins. And you're like, I think I know what this is going to be. It's just going to be like a like a puff piece. But when you watch the movie, you actually see, like, you know, Walt Disney can be very charming as played by Tom Hanks. Uh, and you can see, like, oh, the, the magic of Hollywood. But then the business of Hollywood kicks in. And you see, like, towards the end, like, how much... Uh, P.L. Travers' uh, uh, original story is compromised and how much Walt Disney does not care. And uh, and so I feel like the film is... is it's not nearly as, like, uh, sentimental as you might think. But it's also not... I, I mean, you said earlier with Mank, like, knowing the true story shouldn't, like, sure. affect... But I do think there is a problem that the movie is not as conflicted about Walt Disney as it should be because at the end it, it shows P.L. Travis come around, which never ever happened in real life. Like when she sees the movie, it's on her face that she's like, oh, I get what he was going for. And that, that never happened. And so I do feel like the movie had did eventually land on that, that pro-Disney place. Yeah, I think so. I feel like they probably, I mean, I, I'm sure I understand why they didn't, but I think they probably could have played into that a little bit more that she was dissatisfied, but also this, the... Uh, the uh craven side of walt disney were like i'm gonna get what i want no matter what and i'm gonna do what i want no matter what yeah uh and then the last two on my list this one barely counts well barely takes place in hollywood but judy uh where uh renee zawir plays judy garland in the late 60s that's uh definitely in part of that sort of like like blonde that like chewed up and spit out type of uh story and then of course once upon a time in hollywood is uh the last one which is um uh so romantic (laughs) even though it doesn't think it is i think sometimes it's uh uh there's very little like criticism of hollywood i think in once upon a time in hollywood yeah i would agree with that i mean i guess the one potential criticism and it's not even so much a criticism as it is just a truthful observation is similar to like Sunset Boulevard the idea that like Hollywood can can grow tired of you and kind of throw you to the side um but yeah but the movie is about being okay with that (laughs) yeah absolutely and and also, I think it actually it not only romanticizes, like, the idea of Hollywood, but the actual place. Like, that moment where, like, all the neon signs are coming on, like, that is, that whole sequence is, is like, from someone that is in love with this place. Um, and, you know, I do want to go back. I feel like this might be a good thing to end on since we're going back to Babylon. To me, like, yes, Babylon is, like, this amazing spectacle and i love it on that level but there's that one scene with the gossip columnist and brad pitt and i love that scene i love that monologue where it's where it's she's talking to brad pitt as a person and as a movie star and it's like you as a person you're gonna become unemployable people aren't gonna care about you as much but someday when you die 
people are still going to return to your movies over and over again and i and that speaks to the like the larger concept of hollywood and yes of course it's sad you know for like a norma desmond or dicaprio's character like yes that is sad in general but you know it's something i've said before like when talking about you know uh directors or stars that uh that we're not fans of anymore like Rome Polanski and and Woody Allen is like you know eventually those people are gonna die and their controvert and the controversy it'll probably stick with their name but but the movies are always gonna be around and there will be people that watch the movie that know nothing about the director they only know that this movie is amazing and there and so it, that that immortality which is sort of the nature of art in general but but watching like visual moving art is is i think unique because i mean think about it when we talk about directors that have been dead for like 60 years we still use the present tense yeah you know and uh and i think that's that's part of the the wonder of of just talking about hollywood in general but you know the desire to uh to depict old hollywood and sometimes to show it and it's you know in all its uh, ugly uh, glory, but also to romanticize it. Like I don't think I'm trying to think if there's any movie about old Hollywood that is only ever cynical. I don't think so. I think even those movies, even something like Sunset Boulevard, which is you know pretty rough, even then I think they under they they show like the 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 broader appeal of it. And uh, and that's why these movies. That's why they keep making them. Is is they understand that like it's it's sort of like what Robert Town said about about Chinatown that it's a state of mind. And I feel like there's such a thing as like the Hollywood state of mind and making movies about old Hollywood when that state of mind was being established. I think that's the appeal of it. Well said. I think that's a great place to end. Um, you can find us at battleshippretension.com. You can email. Uh, are you reading your emails, Tyler? Um, sometimes. Uh, What's the best way to get a hold of you now? Uh, I, yeah, I think Tyler at battleshippretension.com, but you can also follow me on Twitter and send me a message if you want to do that. Um, yeah, you've been tweeting from at more lessons, not at Tyler Pretension, right? Uh, yeah, mostly because I have more followers with at more lessons. But yeah, you can follow me uh, on Twitter, and uh, sometimes uh, you'll get a, a glimpse into the darker side of my mentality. But you can also follow like my my progress as well. Um, and I will. And say, that's part of it. Yeah, uh, that's life. Yeah, absolutely. You know. So yeah, the other night I was feeling really low, and I t- and I posted a lot of uh, really dark stuff, and I thought of taking it down, and then I thought, no, like that is part of it. Like as much as I'm sure people love seeing, like, oh wow, he's breathing better now. It's like, well, this is the other part of it, where there are days when I just feel tr- just completely discouraged, and with and that I have no hope. Um, you know, it's important to see both sides of this experience if you're interested in that kind of thing. Um, and I will say, uh, and maybe you were going to throw it to me later, but I will say uh, I do have a written review on Battleship Pretension of David Lowry's Peter Pan and Wendy. And, uh, you know, it was, it was difficult to write because I was dictating to a friend. But uh, but in the end, I was 
I was glad that I did it, and I really enjoyed it. But and you can read about it uh, on BattleshipRetention.com. Yeah, great. Um, so yeah, it, I'm on I'm on Twitter at Davy Pretension. Check out my other podcast, the one where I met your mother. Where my wife and I watch an episode of Friends and an episode of How I Met Your Mother every week. And that's it. Um, thank you guys for listening. We'll get you next time. Bye. Bye.